Hey folks, John from AS for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Kelly Hogaboom. They are a mother and fellow sobernauts in the same program. And we discussed growing up in alcoholic households, finding our first drink at a very early age, and the phenomenon of controlled drinking that is so often painful and frustrating and hardly gives us any control and the subsequent uh, relief and release of recovery, sobriety, not doing it on our own, and the absolute utmost importance of service, both outside and in recovery. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kelly Hogaboom. So Kelly, thank you very much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, Um, I'm happy to talk recovery today. Good, good. That's that's what we like to do. So recovery tends to start with a problem, right? We don't we're not we're not born into recovery. Um, and the thing that interests me most about people is where the seed of their problem arose, not necessarily the first time you had a problem drunk, but was it something in early childhood? Uh, that maybe you were around and that kind of thing. Like, when do you first, where do you first remember alcohol in your life? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So um, until I was eight years old, I was raised in a bus in Huntington Beach, California. And um, my parents, they were good people. They stayed together until my dad died. So I had that sort of stability, but we did live in a bus. We were homeless and um, we used to park at my grandparents' house in this beautiful sunny California weather. And I, in my memory, it was like every night, but it probably wasn't every night. All my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, we, they would all drink and do some drugs and sing shitty, like Jimmy Buffett songs by the campfire. And that is my first memory with alcohol. So it was already confusing because there were these bad behaviors, but there was this warmth and conviviality Mm. and, that that is the seed it really is because that planted both the behavior for me to emulate later in life but also the resentment (laughs) like the resentment which was like it's such a huge part of my story and many people who end up with the problem with drugs or alcohol yeah so uh eight years old that's an early that's that's very early to be around it for sure yeah um when did you were there problems with alcohol early on after that, either with family members or with yourself? I guess like I'm, you know, I'm a, I was a pretty smart kid, like a lot of uh, addicts and alcoholics, like they, apparently we have sort of higher IQs, supposedly, I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. And I think I figured out early on that alcohol and drugs were a problem in my family and that nobody was admitting it. Like to this day, I'm the only sober member of that family, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the problem because I was like, their behaviors were clearly influenced, but they wouldn't own up to their problems. And they, you know, they hid things. You know, I found out my dad had a DUI years after he had died. My mom was like, oh, you know, your dad got a DUI. I'm like, no, I didn't. So it was really those sort of secrets and like that culture And as far as my actual drinking, I think I was 12 when I sort of went out of my way to like have a drink, right? That would have been the first time. Was it easy to get a drink at 12 years old? Oh, yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. How about um, how about you? I haven't listened to the podcast. Am I allowed to ask you questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. You want to? I mean, we we can ask me. Yeah. Um, my my father was an alcoholic, um, and <laughs> the sure. Uh, so uh, this is yeah. This is not normally how it goes, but that's okay. fine. Um, so my father was an alcoholic. Later in life, he well, he was very sick his entire life. Very very sick. He contracted asthma as a six month old baby and then in the current in the, in those years i mean the treatment for asthma was a lot of pills that we now don't we don't give okay. in the same way so rotted out all his joints mm-hmm. and um he had to have surgeries on i think every single both shoulders and both hips and so it was less about the alcohol later on just cuz he couldn't handle it but um he had his brain had been um pretty eaten away by these drugs mm. as well. That was something that I later learned and was, it was helpful in finding forgiveness Absolutely, because yeah. I was like, Oh, he didn't have control over it. He didn't have control over his behaviors. His brain was, was mush. Um, my first drinking that I can remember, because this is a little exercise. That's why I like to ask people. I think, I mean, I know where I remember the address. It was 509 Bonanza uh, or North lamb and lamb and Bonanza. And I must've been 12 or 13. And, um, I had spilled some white wine that was in the fridge and it had spilled into the vegetable crisper and there were some, uh, sprouts, bean sprouts in a plastic bag that were soaked in white wine. My punishment was to eat those bean sprouts over the kitchen sink. Um, my father was very sick. He spent a lot of time at home. He uh, got hooked into video games very early on in the 80s and 90s, um, which could be seen as seen as fun, but it was not fun. Um, And so I remember him playing video games. He used to keep us kids up at night making maps for like Legend of Zelda and stuff like that, like on big poster board, Mm. like weird, insane stuff, you know, um, on school nights. But I'm sitting there eating these sort of bean sprouts soaked in white wine and sort of half shoving some of down the sink. And then my brother is across the sort of little bar countertop kitchen countertop and he's naked and he's sitting on an ice cube. And that was his punishment. And I don't remember why. And um, I have asked my brother and he doesn't really, he doesn't remember this day. Go yeah, figure. It seems, it seems fairly memorable, but um, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, kind of chaos and, in your life. Yeah, right. So, um, and maybe it's just something he chooses not to. So I didn't get drunk that day, but that was the first day that I remember going, wow. "Oh, uh, this is alcohol," and it was terrible. As far as addictions go, as far as things that I could get high with, or it wasn't booze; it was. Um, back when you used to be able to get over the counter and his antihistamines that would make okay. you sleepy. So I would eat those. I had a little bottle that I, I guess I must've stolen it from the bathroom and kept it in my sock drawer or something. Um, my dad had lots and lots and lots of pills. So um, that started there with the antihistamines. And um, by ninth grade, I was sitting in the back of coach Camelloni's driver's ed class. Um, well, let's go back. Uh, geometry was the first period. So about 15 minutes before the geometry was over, I'd go to the water fountain, get excused. I'd pop one of my dad's muscle relaxers, Soma, um, amazing yes. drug. And, um, 
I was high for the, the entirety of driver's ed because who cares, right? I'll just sit in the back of the class. Me and Sarah would just crack up and make jokes. I don't remember. I don't think she got high with me, but I would steal candy bars from the, uh, the band kids when that was around. So that's how it started with pills before I ever had a first like real drunk and thought, right. wow, this is amazing. And that, that happened. I don't know. i probably started pretty late. So ninth, 10th, almost 11th grade before I had my first real drunk. So yeah. 16. And then it was, you know, at Steve's house and drinking Jack Daniels and filling it up with iced tea and, you know, ditching class and listening to records. And yeah, God. I mean, that's, that's, that was, that was the progression into alcohol is the answer for me. <laughs> it's so um, funny. Like I've done a few drugs, not, you know, a few different types, but I don't remember my first for anything except alcohol. So, you know, mm. I did smoke pot and, you know, get into <clears throat> opiates and a few other things, but like, I kind of don't remember um, the first, but with alcohol I do. And when you look back at these ages that we're talking about, you know, eight years old, 12 years old, 16, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I mean, I have a 19 year old and a 20 year old mm -hmm. and they're, they're like mature, awesome men. And when I think about when they were 11 or 12 for them to have started down that path, it's heartbreaking to think about, you know, and we're, we're proof that you can survive and that you can you know, rehabilitate your life, but it just makes me as a parent that those stories are hard to hear, you know, even though I grew up, I survived a childhood with that kind of neglect. Um, yeah. 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 My mother doesn't like to hear them either. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I don't think, I mean, thankfully, or I don't know if she does, but I don't think she doesn't listen to this every week, but, um, but you know, and we've, we've had long conversations. She's actually been on the podcast before. Oh, that's um, So that was really nice. Yes. That was really <clears throat> great. That was a good one. Um, but yeah, it's, it really is. And it's, it's easy from our perspective right. to go like, yeah, we did that, whatever, whatever, whatever. Cause we've had what decades to kind of yes. blow it off and that sort of thing. And it was just normal, right? It just gets, it gets normalized, yeah. um, yes. but it's really not. And it's, it really fucks with the kid's yes, head. It does. And their brain chemistry, like literally, like <laughs> when I first got sober, my best friend, I got sober in 2011. And I told my best friend of many years, I said, I said, I think I, I think I really damaged my brain by drinking. And she said, well, that's good. Cause you used to be really intimidating. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but anyway, I, I have enough of a brain to keep going. So I'm still going. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that like my brain is, hat was permanently altered from yes. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks. <laughs> And I did it for like seven, no, like 22 years or whatever it was. It was, yeah. it was too much. Um, what was your first drunk? Oh gosh. So it was, uh, Carlo Rossi screw, you know, screw top shit, mm -hmm. um, out of my parents covered. And it was also white wine, which is interesting because my family was way more hard alcohol, red wine, but for some reason they had a white wine in the cupboard. And, um, I don't think I had much, but I, felt great. And I asked this boy, Brandon, I think I told him that I liked him. He was at my house and I felt awesome. Cause I, you know, uninhibited and I was the little life of the 12 year old, 13 year old party. And there was no downside, right? There was no mm -hmm. repercussion. I never got caught, never got punished, but that was definitely, I still remember it. I still remember some uh, visual cues from that day. Nothing much happened except 
I just felt so much better than I normally felt. And I could be someone that I normally couldn't be. So that was my first. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, bean sprouts. That sucks, man. It's <laughs> no good. Well, it's just the whole thing is, is baffling. And it wasn't, I don't even think it was something that I had. Um, it wasn't until I started thinking about it that it kind of popped up and I was like, oh shit, I remember that day. Yeah. Um, so, and what age were you when you had your first? 12. 12. 12. Yeah. Okay. So you're 12 years old. And then um, was it readily accessible from there on out? Or yeah, was it- it, yeah, it was. Um, but, you know, you talk about the normal. And when I, so I was an A student, I got a full ride scholarship, all those things. So I, my culture, my, was you drank and fooled around on the weekends. And so if you would have told me that one of my classmates was literally high or drunk at age 13, 14 during class, I would have said, no, he, I would not have believed it that, that, because I think our drinking and using is as a big part of what culture and what family we come from. And I did not believe that young children were drinking and using during school hours. Even the, it took me years as an adult to realize that, that, that there were kids in my classroom doing that. So I was very much a weekend party person for the rest of my career <clears throat> until I had children. And then I had to really tightly regulate it. So I, I never got to the stage of doing things like getting up in the morning and doing things, or, you know, I, I was probably right this close to starting to drink in the morning when I got sober, it was probably right around the corner. And so you, so then you, you, you had, um, I don't want to say you had control, but you had it tightly regulated, which is another form of insanity, right. Of, of checking clocks and making sure and having, this yes. laundry list of things That's that right. need to be done. And then. Yes. And my first sponsor told me when I first was trying to get my mind around this, she said, it doesn't matter if it's two months between your drinks or two minutes, it's what your life is like. And that helped me because I couldn't understand, you know, most alcoholics, by the time we get sober, we know we're alcoholic, but we also don't understand how that can be true. I mean, was that where you were at? You were like, yeah. I know I am, but I can't possibly be. And so I sort of, I wish this conversation was more destigmatized in the mainstream world because you can recognize alcoholism, not by a quantity or a frequency, but by how we feel and what our lives look like. And do we feel ashamed when we drink or use, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. was for me, yeah. it's like, I've been sober 11 years, but if I took a drink tomorrow, I would feel ashamed instantly. Yeah, it wouldn't take long at all. Yeah, I would know that it was not the right thing for me. Yeah, it's 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 not it it absolutely yes I know that emphatically. I don't have, you know, I always knock on wood. I can't imagine a relapse coming, but um, and I guess I've been better at recognizing all of the the impulses and all that stuff. But I mean, yeah, it doesn't. It's it's no longer a thing that I can even remotely imagine ever. I was thinking about this <laughs> podcast before this morning, and I was like, "If I love talking about my drinking, but it also feels like I was living on another planet back then. It feels so different than the life I have now, even though I'm kind of the same guy, really. Like, but it was it was like going on a crazy trip, <laughs> and that I'm back, and I'm never going on that trip again." We'll talk a little bit about the madness of <clears throat> regulating your schedule to fit your drinking. 
So I, um, so my husband and I have been together 25 years and we had our children 20 years ago. Right. And the moment we had children, I, I knew that illegal drugs was out of my life because, because in my childhood, I remember knowing that my parents were risking something by, by doing illegal activities. So there was some weird way that once I had children, illegal drugs were gone for whatever reason. So then I was, you know, my husband stayed home the first year that we had our children and I worked and I quickly, again, not consciously, but I quickly got it to where, okay, Ralph, after the kids are in bed, that's when I get to drink. And so that, that worked for me for a long time. And I still could get through my day without, because, because guess what? You know, that five o'clock is coming, right? You know, that, you know, you know, it's coming, right? So I just had to get through it. And like I said, it's so crazy because my active drinking, where I would call, where I would say it was very recognizable was after I weaned my youngest child. So he would have been two and I got sober when he was seven. So that's five. It took five years for my life to crash and burn. That's a, that was a shitty five years. I hope I can cuss on this podcast. I'm sorry. I should yeah, have asked. You're, no, that's okay. fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so so what what happened in that five years that was so shitty? What um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't need it. I don't need no. I I but. no. I it's I my marriage really suffered so much that we're still experiencing echoes of that all these years later. Yeah. Um, financially, couldn't make things work. You know, I was we were one of those we didn't even bother answering the phone or looking at the mail anymore because of the the financial issues. Um, I remember a guy pulling into my driveway with a big thick pad of papers to serve us about wage garnishment. And I was holding two babies. Like that was the kind of chaos. And, but more than that, the worst thing was my parenting problems that those were so, I was so, I was doing and behaving in a way that was so reprehensible to me and I couldn't stop. And if somebody would have told me, Kelly, you, you don't drink during the day, but you're still under the effects of alcohol and you're detoxing all day. And that's why you can't parent gently and, and properly. I, I truly believe if I would have understood that I would have gotten sober sooner because when I came in, my kids were seven and nine and I, I can't even express how bad I felt about the way I was parenting. I just, and it's funny because you know, I was a better parent than my own parents, but I, it doesn't matter. It's like, it wasn't, it was terrible. So yeah, in a nutshell, marriage money, but the children, the children were the worst of it. And um, like I said, they were seven and nine when I got sober and it, I thought, oh, I've screwed their lives up. What's, you know, I just didn't think I deserved to get better, but I knew that they deserved better. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's a great point that you bring up. Uh, it, and it's not even just the drinking and actively drinking at night or during the day, right. or whatever. And it's not even just the active hangover that you have the next day. It's not just the immediate recovery from like, my head hurts. I'm sick. You know, all of that stuff. I can't think straight. I have to deal with this. And then waking up to whatever horrible mess you've made both right. emotionally and just in your physical space in front of you. Right. Um, but even the days where you're like, cause I did this where I'm not going to drink today. We're just going to, we just need two days off and then everything will be fine. <laughs> so I would get those, but those two days would be, well, 
those two days are coming up soon. And then that's, and I would be spending two days planning what that right. night of drinking was going to be like and how good yes. and how big and how bad it was going to be. And um, so it was all of that in between space that there, yeah, there's no time to. Well, and it's, you're just still waiting. I mean, I funnily, so after I was two years sober, I quit smoking as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, that wasn't quite as hard and it wasn't quite as bombastic of a change, but I read the nicotine anonymous book. Have you ever read it? It's no. really, it's little, it's skinny. Someone just gave it to me. I never been to a Nikkei meeting or anything like that, but there was a, a line in the book that said something like we either, we either lit a cigarette or we planned to light one. And, and I realized that's what an alcoholic for me, it's like, I'm either going to drink or I'm planning to drink. And if I'm planning to drink, then while I'm talking to you right now, there's a part of me that's not really here and not really invested because the big events happening later. And how good of a parent can you be if, if you're always just wanting to escape it, you know, even when you're not guzzling something, you know, but also I just had a temper. I would yell at my kids. I hit my kids. Like, but even if I hadn't done those things, I was not there for them. And they must have seen, uh, they must have understood that on a deep level, right? Sure. I mean, kids do. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. as, a, as a child of a parent who was an alcoholic, I understood a lot that I, I, I yeah. I mean, it, it just, even as a, at a young age, it gets in there and you know that something's yeah. not right. Even you know, if you something's know not right. That's right. Um, so uh, to, our, to my credit, I named what it was and I got better. Yes. And that's a huge credit for my children that they saw that they saw the arc, <laughs> yes. the redemption arc. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and, th and that's the other, the other part of it is that children, when something is right, they recognize it very quickly yeah. and are able to, um, to take that in for sure. For sure. Um, what was the, the moment of clarity, the turning point, the, the, Oh, the God. last straw. So I went to a, a new doctor. I had sort of a doctor that would just give you pills for everything and a GP. And I was like, I knew that wasn't going to help me. And I didn't think alcohol was the source of my problems yet. I was having a lot of anxiety and I still live with anxiety all these years later with, you know, having been clean and sober, but I went to this new doctor in Montesano, Washington, um, at the beginning of 2011, and he gave me clonopin. And I went home and took it as prescribed and I came back to see him. So my second visit with him and he, he had asked me these questions that were way more personal than doctors usually do. He was like, mm -hmm. what's your, how was your childhood? How's your sex life? I'm like, what? Like, this is weird. So in that second conversation with him, he asked me a couple of questions and then he said, I think you're an alcoholic. And it was the first time anyone had said that to me. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. And I felt really bad. I mean, I, that was not, I didn't think there was any solution at all. None, zero. So we had a little talk and I was feeling sorry for myself. And he asked if I'd ever quit. And I said, well, I tried to quit, but my life didn't get better. And he looked at me and he said, you don't quit for your life to get better. You quit because you have a disease and it is your responsibility. <laughs> and that was the moment that changed my life because I knew he was right. And nobody had said that to me directly to me ever. 
And of course, as you know, that's only the beginning that, you know, that little light bulb moment. And some people have lots of little light bulb, but that was the big one for me because that was where I was like, it doesn't matter if I feel better when I quit. Um, I have a responsibility. And I like that he said it, it's a disease. He's just, he was just very matter of fact. Yeah. And um, I've come to really appreciate him for that because how many doctors don't even bother asking because they know we won't tell the truth or they don't even know what to, how to help us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's a great way to put it. It's you had, you do have a responsibility, I think. And I've heard this from other people and I felt similarly was I just wanted to get better for myself. And it was very, I think it was in some ways it was very selfish because I had lost, I had lost a relationship. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, in my moment, I, I saw everything that I had going away. I had a few good mm -hmm. things, a few good things, and I saw them all gone. And I was like, I need to just survive. It's not about anyone else. It's not about a responsibility to a disease or society or anything like that. But hearing that from you now, it's absolutely today, my responsibility yeah. to continue to deal with this. So here I am talking, you know, with you. Yeah. I mean, it's just as much for me as it is to, to, to learn your story, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, um, I was inside a meeting in Shelton, Washington, and a guy there said the greatest, if you're an addict and alcoholic, the greatest gift you can give your loved ones is to get and stay clean and sober. And I, I believe that because I, I think some of our loved ones will never forgive us or forget, or they'll even in the back of their mind, they're worried about us maybe for the rest of our lives, but, but we can do nothing for them if we're still fiddle fucking around and, and like, I'm just going to do it on the side. I'm going to do it on the weekends. Like they, that's disrespectful, you know? So yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think that too falls under the category of service, Mm -hmm. And why that's such an important part. And, you know, when I was, when I, when it was explained to me, it was like, John, it doesn't have to be in service of AA or another alcoholic, you know? And so I started doing things like volunteering at the museum to move walls for things like that, or what, just trying to find anything and everything I could do that might be of some help to someone else. And it took a while before it started to click that like, oh no, this is for me as well right? <laughs> this is yeah. to help me. If I'm busy moving walls, I'm not busy drinking. I'm doing something or, else. Yeah. Or I'm not busy thinking about myself and my problems. I right. I've put myself in a mental and emotional space to think about somebody else for, even if it's only an hour or, you know, I do love meetings. I just wrote about this on my, my writing platform because, you know, we have a recovery hall here. And a few years ago, I was chairing a lot of meetings and a guy started to fixate on me and, and stalk me. And it turned me off of going there. You know, it's first time in eight years that this had happened and yeah. it sucked. And so the other day, a friend invited me to come back to that hall and meet her. And I felt this anxiety as I drove up and parked because, because of that situation. But once I walked in and sat down, I was like, oh, I'm very safe. Like, you know, you sit down, someone's going to read, they're, they're going to say a little prayer. They're going to do these readings. There's this sort of 10 minute time that you're supposed to just collect your thoughts. So I'm collecting my thoughts. I forget about that guy. I start looking around the room and seeing other people. I start listening to other people and I am out of my own worries and anxieties and projects for an hour. 
And I just think that that attitude of service, like I'm here to help others is tremendous. Anyone, alcoholic addict or whatever, like could benefit tremendously from committing to that kind of um, behavior regularly. Yes. Yes. Uh, So when the doctor said to you, you have a responsibility to your disease, what, and you feel completely shamed and demoralized and horrible about yourself and everything you've done with your life. (laughs) How do you, um, is that, if that's, is that accurate? Cause that's how I I just felt deflated. I felt I had nothing. I don't even know. I can't, you know, most people listening will probably know what that moment's like, but it's just there. I had nothing. There was no next thought. So when did the next thought or when was there, what was the next step that ultimately came from that? So he said, he said, I will support you, but you need to do this on your own. And that was sort of the second part was like, okay, he's not going to give me more medicine or it's not going to be him that fixes it. Right. So that was my first thought. So he asked if I'd ever been to meetings. He never mentioned any specific fellowship. He just said meetings. And I said, um, I said, yeah, but I think that's just a bunch of old guys that just talk about their drinking all the time. And he, he looked at me again and he said, so what? Nothing's perfect. You came to me for help. And again, I was like, okay, like this guy and I, it was great. I, he presented me an opportunity and I perceived it. So by the time I was driving home from that appointment, I was borrowing my mom's truck because my life was a mess. I was like, the only person I know that goes to recovery meetings is a blog reader of mine named Kate. And I will call her because if I call her, I won't be too scared to go to a meeting. So that would have been my third thought. (laughs) It was like, I couldn't grasp what, what ended up unfolding the journey Mm -hmm. that you and I have been through, but I could grasp that if I called Kate, I wouldn't be too scared to go to a meeting. And she, this woman um, talked to me for an hour and a half while I was pouring out stuff in the sink. And by the time I got off the phone with her, I knew I was I would be able to go to a meeting. And I went to my first meeting the next day. So, you know, it's like a series of steps, right? Cause it's like, that was all I could do for that day. The only sane thing I could do was pour things out, call Kate. And um, when I told my husband that the doctor called me an alcoholic, my husband didn't believe that, but to his credit, he got rid of all the wine glasses. Like to his credit, he behaved in a way that was pretty constructive, which is amazing to me today. Cause he was, his heart was pretty hardened to me by now. And he didn't, he, I think he thought that the alcoholism was an excuse. He didn't think that was my real problem. (laughs) I had a litany of problems, but that wasn't one of them. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, it couldn't, (laughs) it can't be, it can't be easy to live with an alcoholic, you know? Um, I've always been the alcoholic in the relationship and very rarely has it been the other way around. That's never (laughs) been the other way around. Um, but yeah, so you start going to meetings and it, it, it makes sense miraculously at first. Or yeah, actually, was it- yeah. The first meeting I went to was Saturday night, you know, my for second day sober. And I thought I was going to see a bunch of depressed people. And the meeting was pretty small. It was like 12 to 18 people. And it was so clear to me, everybody there was doing better than me. I was like, oh, I'm the depressed person. Right. And um, I, I could see it worked, but I couldn't understand what I was seeing. There was a guy there named Dan who he was, he had this, like one of those leather jackets. that's like really fake leather. Right. But he's like looking at me and he's like, he said eight years, he had eight years sober. And I was like, that's not possible. And if it's possible, why are you here? And why aren't you just off doing, having your better life? 
that was that confused me for about a week but now I get it so you know um after that meeting I was feeling real sick because again I'm detoxing without any medical help I don't I don't even know that I'm detoxing and a gal chased me out of the meeting and said why don't I take you to some more meetings tomorrow (laughs) so my third day she dragged me around so I will tell you that that fellowship I credit all of my sobriety to them. I went, I've been to thousands of meetings at this point. You know, I met my sponsor. I got a sponsor right away. You know, within a week I'd started steps and um, I just, if they wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have gone, I'd be dead. And if they wouldn't have reached out to help me, I think I would be dead (laughs) because you know how there's that, like that moment of fear where you have enough fear that you will do almost anything they caught me when I was still in that place, when I was still that afraid. And of course, yeah. now I'm not afraid. Like, just like you, we, we, we're happy to, to commit, to recommit to sobriety. And we're not scared to be sober. We're not, I'm not tortured by the thought that I don't, that I'm not going to drink again. That's, it's irrelevant to my life. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I have, uh, I still get bothered and upset and sad and depressed and anxious and all those things. And, and I think somebody, somebody once said, do you ever still want to drink or, and I was, and my answer, I think in the moment of anger or whatever was, yeah, absolutely. And what I've come to realize is that it wasn't the drink that I wanted. It was the sense of immediate relief that I got from that. Right. Not to scare the other person by saying, oh, I'm, you know, you're sober and now I want to drink. It's not like, that's not what I wanted. Cause I know that's not. I was being, you know, silly or hyperbolic about the, about the thing, but, um, and I've learned that that's what I need is I'm just looking for relief. So when I think, oh man, I don't feel good. I want to drink. It's like, well, that just means that you need some relief and it's probably going to take you a little bit longer or you have to find a different way to find it, but it is possible. It's been possible for seven years now. So, you know, yeah. So I, I never, the urge to drink never returned for me. Not Mm -hmm. everyone's, I want to point out anyone out there listening. I had a sponsor who had cravings for two years before they finally ceased. So don't think you're doing something wrong. If you crave it or think about it, you're not doing anything wrong. But in my case, it was just removed. Like it was, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, but it was a miracle anyway. But what's interesting is when I'm angry enough, I will want a cigarette. And that's, that's if you, if you like, that's happened like three times since I quit smoking. I'm like, I'm so, Mm -hmm. I'm so angry. And I'm like, I want a cigarette. And then I think, oh, Kelly, you're really angry. Cause that's you digging that that's as deep as I've dug. I bet before I die, the day will come when I, when I say I want to drink. It hasn't happened in 11 years, but it's like, that's when I'm so, it's just funny. I'm like, if you, if I have that urge for cigarette, that means that just tells me I am so angry and that's like, okay, well, I'm clearly not going to smoke or drink or drug or have an affair. I'm not going to do any of those things. So what I am going to do is talk to somebody who will understand and support me. Yeah. How did you quit smoking? It was sort of like drinking, but less, you know, it's like a sine wave. It was less of a, Mm -hmm. of a, you know, I just remember knowing how it was making me feel sick and it's sort of like alcohol it's like yeah you you do start to perceive that you are ill and I remember thinking I'm coming to the end of my smoking career and of course I didn't want to it's an addiction it's wonderful um 
I, I still think smoking looks cool. I know I shouldn't sure. say that, but it's like, it's so cool. Yeah. But anyway, um, you know, I grew up in all B movies and stuff. So smoking, but um, yeah, it was a similar process. I just, I, in my case, I didn't have to work steps or go to a meeting, but I'll tell you something. If I ever had another problem, that's where I would go. Do you know what I mean? If I developed a gambling problem or an eating disorder, I would go to a 12 step that was around that issue. And I would find a sponsor and work the steps like my life depended on it. Cause I know that that works. Yeah. You make a good point. I deal with food issues a lot <laughs> and it's yeah. been up and down and really up and really down, not to mention all of the externalities that have happened over the last couple of years that put Lots extra added pressure yes. on things yeah. that we've all experienced. We don't need to go into, but um, yeah. And you're absolutely right. And I keep thinking maybe, maybe I should go to an overeaters anonymous meeting and then I don't do anything about it. It's, I think even if you're seasoned and you're cocky and you, let's say you got clean and NA or you got a wonderful life in Al-Anon or whatever you get, when there's new issue comes up that causes you pain, I think it's still scary to say, okay, I'm going to go to that gamblers anonymous meeting. I, I just, you know what I mean? I, it's mm-hmm. not easy because sure. the mechanism of addiction, we're very scared. It doesn't matter how much or how little we're doing of the substance or the behavior. It's the fear around the cessation. Yeah. And I think somebody once said this too, that there's a, we as alcoholics like to call ourselves alcoholics and we say it's a problem with alcohol and we have it in this box and we give it names, right? Yeah. So that we can keep it over here. And then that's not part of my, the rest of my life because right. I have fixed that one. So it's, it's out, out of the way. All of these things are actually just human problems. Yeah. And so an addiction and um, all the stuff that comes with it it's just a problem with being human. So whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or porn or gambling or food, it's, it's just part of being a human being with a human brain and a human heart. And, you know, that was something that I was like, Oh, okay. That makes a little more sense. And I don't feel so bad about failing my failing myself. Yeah. (laughs) A a few years ago, Russell Brand, whom I, I don't like, the direction his work has gone at all. But I will say he said something about if you get clean, like your addiction will sneak into another avenue. And I, I do believe mm-hmm. that is pretty true. Like it's not, and it can be really sneaky because I developed a problem with overworking and that came, I came to see that about two years ago. And so it didn't happen like, bam. And also I'm one of those, like I quit drinking, I quit smoking and I actually went vegan a few years ago and I didn't start, I didn't start eating more. I'm the same size shape and I eat, well, I don't eat the same cause I'm vegan now, but you know what I mean? Like I don't, mm-hmm. it didn't like bounce me into an immediate obvious coping mechanism, but over time the overwork creeped in. And it, that's not just a function of my alcoholism. That's a function of my children no longer needing me because I homeschooled them and now they're men. And I'm like, I've got this energy. So guess where I put it work. Yeah. Um, so I do think our, we do creep into other modalities of over consumption or whatever it doesn't. And I, I, I'm glad to hear you're compassionate about that. Cause there's no point in beating ourselves up for it. It won't make us get better to beat ourselves up. 
Oh God, you're gonna make me analyze myself. Yeah, I'm good. Ha- I'm gonna have to. <laughs> you're like, I'm gonna have to start going through here. What was it? There was another. I I had a call with a financial advisor. Um, because mm-hmm. I was like, here are my issues. Here's what I'm looking to do. You know, this is what I need to get off my plate. This is what I'd like to add to my plate. And one of the things she said was, you need to find the leaky spots in your finances. And I was like, oh shit. And I don't have the same leaky spots that I used to being that I don't drink and smoke anymore. Right. But, um, but I was like, I see what you're saying. And so that's kind of what that is. Find out where it has, where it has transferred to where, where you're, where you're leaking from and fix the leak or eventually you're going to drown. Yeah. And also like, I would just say, have a light touch with it. Do you know what I mean? If you can have a light touch, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, maybe I'm scrolling social media compulsively or something. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have that problem. And then sometimes addicts and alcoholics will be like, well, I'm an, I have an alcoholic brain and I blah. It's like, man, just, just ask yourself, like, do you want to spend less time on social media? And if the answer is yes, talk to someone about it, make, you know, put a timer on your phone and see if a light, see if a light touch can help you. Because if the light touch doesn't help you, I think you do end up at the path where you're going to be in a 12 step fellowship over this issue because you got it entrenched and it got bigger and it snowballed. Nothing wrong with the 12 step saved my life, but if you can kind of gently, yeah, I'm yeah. a Buddhist, right? So it's like, like, Hey man, like if you don't like how much time you're spending mm. on social media, can you, can you put a timer on it and spend an hour instead? Don't, don't berate yourself. Just, so I think that finding the leaky spot, like for some people that's empowering, but for some people that feels scary, like, cause they're just like, oh, I'm just, I'm fucked up no matter what I do. Right. And it's like, yeah, but you're also beautiful. And no matter what you do, you do wonderful things too. Right. Mm-hmm. And we can, it is possible to reorganize our lives in a better way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel possible yeah. in those moments, whether even if it's, whether it's in the deepest pits of alcoholism or the fact that I really got to put my phone somewhere else than right next yeah. to my bed in the yeah, morning, right, right. because I just don't want that 38 minutes of phone yes. time in bed before I wake up. Yes. Right. I want it to be somewhere else. So the, there are ways to reorganize our lives. It may not be fun. It'll and, probably be painful some of the way, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, and I, I think a, another human being who understands and doesn't, here's the thing I love about a recovery relationship. They don't let you off the hook. If you mm-hmm. say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to cheat on my partner and you have someone in recovery, they're going to hold you to that standard. They're not going to say, ah, oh, it's no big deal. They're going to say, I see that it's a big deal for you and I'm here to support you. And so I think if you have a problem with anything, try to find someone else who understands that it's a problem and who's going to gently and with kindness hold you to some accountability. I don't think I could get sober without other human beings involved. I don't think no. so. No, I don't think, I mean, not for long, probably, and not as, um, not as uh, enjoyably. I bring this, uh, this up quite a bit with people when we talk about this, this thing. And I, I had a friend of mine, Ian was sober for five years without anyone's help. And you talk to him now and he goes, I hated every minute of it. I cannot believe I lived on spite and spite alone for five years. It was miserable. I can't believe in, you know, and he ended up going to meetings and, and is 
I don't know, 13, 14, whatever it is, you're sober, but my God, like that's, it's miserable. He's a tough cookie. Tell him yeah, I said he's a tough I, cookie. <laughs> I will, I will. But it's just, it was just sort of this epiphany to me of, of like, I guess you can do it, but it's not, it's not sustainable. How much time all. and how much he had five years, he could do it. I don't think I have five no. years. I could do that. And I, when I was still drinking, one of my friends, a lovely woman, she and I used to drink together. She told me about being a dry drunk. And I was mm-hmm. like, what is that? And she explained it. And I didn't understand it because I had that magical thinking that once that it was like, I saw it in terms of moral, a moral thing. People who don't drink are just sort of a better class of people. So why would they have a bunch of problems? And by the way, weirdly, that's how I used to think of veganism. Oh, someone who's vegan is just morally, they're just less, they're like morally <laughs> superior to me. And now, I, I mean, obviously I know that's not true because I'm vegan and I'm not. It's like, it's, it's like that weird, I hate to see, use the word childish, but this weird framing that people who don't drink just don't have problems. It's like, that's not true. We all have yeah. problems, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we all do every single one of us. And so it's, and I, I certainly couldn't do it alone. I, I can't imagine ever doing it alone. I am so glad that there is a number of people that I can call at any given point to say, Hey, I'm having some trouble or even just, Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. Right. You know? So it's, it's been, that's where a lot of the relief has come from. And unexpectedly when people reach out to me and I'm like, Oh, oh that's oh. the best. <laughs> When they, it's like, oh, you want my help? Oh, wow. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Let me get right on that. Like, let me yeah. drop everything that I'm doing exactly. right now and help you. Um, you it's have no idea selfish. what a relief yeah. this is. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of funny. Yeah. When my friend texted me the other day, I was like, do you want to come to a meeting with me? I'm like, yes. Cause it's, I haven't been to one in a while and yeah. I'm, and I can't wait to have coffee with her after and hear about her life because I'm like parched for that human connection and getting outside of my own concerns because, you know, today we do pay our bills and our marriage is better. Our kids are doing great, but then that means you, I filled my life up with work. And of course I'm going to be thinking about that. And so recovery gets me a chance to not think about all my little projects and to, to listen to my friend and ask her questions. And it's so important. And, you know, you said that it doesn't matter what kind of service we do. And I agree with that, but I think for me, I still need to regularly talk about the, the drinking aspect or go to that particular fellowship or do you know what I mean? Like I can't just kind of bundle it into the past. Right. Like I do need to remind myself that's how I will get more years. (laughs) Yeah, you're correct. You are correct. Now I I say, I, I say that in the spirit of I don't think especially somebody who's new to sobriety needs the pressure yeah. of service in sobriety. Right. I feel as if, um, because if somebody had pressured me to be more of service early on, I would not, I would not have taken to it. And so I, that's why I always say, find something else. And it was really helpful to me in the beginning. Today, I find it very important to reach yeah. out to other alcoholics yeah. talk to them and have that uh, service in recovery as part of a part of my my life, my daily life. So yes, and this podcast obviously is is service, and um, 
but it's kind of like having a treatment center job, you know, like people classically, they get sober, then they go back to college and get a substance abuse um, certificate or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they go work in a treatment center. And I've heard people say, that's great, but make sure you also just go to meetings. You can't only, it can't just be professional or a project, or it has to be this I don't know if it's spiritual or the book calls it an avocation. And I like that word because it's kind of like, not kind of a hobby, but it's like, I'm not getting anything out of this, right? I don't get a paycheck or I don't get um, fame, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how popular this podcast is, but like, you know, you know that the podcast is great. And I also need to, as just a normal schlub, go to meetings or I don't know. I don't know if you have a sponsor or not, but yes. Yes. The you know, sponsors are, have been helpful. I'm actually without one right now, which is painful, but um, yeah, like my life's undergone huge changes the last year, but I still do service at the district level in that fellowship yeah. and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm highly aware of the um, performative aspect of having a podcast in recovery and the uh, weird space in which that holds. And so yeah. I'm, I'm not like what I, I certainly don't want it to feed my fevered ego uh, any more than it does. And I try to think of it as service in a way, but you're right that it needs to be these things. And I do, um, I do try to find and, or be available when it's asked of me to do things that it's just like, Hey, Oh, such and such. Hey, do you need this? Maybe I can set you up with somebody else. Do you need somebody to talk to? I can be that person. And you just, like you said, it's, it's an avocation. It's just my baseline. If yeah. somebody says, Hey, I need help. I'm going to find space and time and room to help them today. If I can tomorrow, if I can't today. Yeah. Or just be great. I, when someone wants my help, I'll think I'm so glad I'm in a position that I'm trusted these days that like, even if I can't do it or, it, you know, cause I am a semi public figure and I do get a lot of requests and sometimes I can't meet them all, mm-hmm. but I do have that moment where it's like, I, I've really changed into a functional member of society. And some uh, people listening to this podcast know how that feels that we to have been on one side of that. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, no, I'm fairly functional. I pay my taxes and I pretty kind person. And and I, I also think that sometimes the recovery world has a very self-deprecating tone. Sure. And I think it's okay to run a kick-ass podcast and to, I, I do. I, well, thank just you. Like, it's okay to be good at being a lawyer. It's okay to be good yeah. at your job, but it's okay. You know, because um, in the beginning, I don't know about you, but I felt really low and my sponsor is like, okay, listen, you need a little balance here. <laughs> like you she, she made me put my assets and my liabilities. She didn't let me just put my liabilities, my personal character traits. She's like, you're generous, you're mm-hmm. smart, you're kind. And I hope, I just hope you give yourself props, I guess. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you said, you said, you don't know how popular this podcast is. I don't really know either. Either I've tried to read metrics and I have no idea oh, what's yeah, going yeah. on over there. So how long have you been doing it? How many episodes is this? 2018. Oh, wow. Um, so okay. we've been doing it. I started it with my buddy and um, he moved on to other things. Uh, he's still sober and, and lovely and my very dear friend. Um, but and yeah, since 2018. So I don't, I don't know how many episodes I, wow. again, I, maybe I should be keeping better track of this stuff, but I it's, just, it's a lot I, of, so I co-host a podcast and uh-huh. it's, it's so much work to just do the casting. So, 
um, and then the uploads and all of that. So yeah. It's a lot of work, right? But well, congratulations. That's a, that's awesome. 2018. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, and I, I just, I guess, and I say this, um, like I, even if it helps a few people, I know this is, this seems sort of, I would like this to sound as genuine as possible. So I'll just say it. If it, if it only helps a few people, that's fine. If there's only like a half a dozen people who listen to it, if there's like two people who listen to it and it helps somebody to not feel alone, then great you know, um, and then it's just out there as a thing that can be, um, can be had, can be found, right? I don't have to, it's not a, um, it's just, it just exists in the world. So however many episodes there are, if somebody's looking for something. And so it's just, I do my best and I hope that it's good, <laughs> you know, but yeah. um, I don't, uh, it has not led me to uh, fame and fortune in the recovery world. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't sell a lot of t-shirts, that sort of thing. And yeah. that's fine. I'm, you know what I mean? Like I, I, it's, I think I wonder about that because you'll find a celebrity and you'll find out they're clean and sober. Mm-hmm. You'll find it through an article, but mm-hmm. they don't talk about it. They haven't written a book about it. They're not making a name for themselves about it, yeah. but, but they probably are just like you and I, they go to a, a they attend a fellowship. They, they work the steps. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about people in the public eye because I'm like, you, you, we, we had one a little while ago. That's like, I'm California sober. And then they came back mm-hmm. and they're like, no, wait, that doesn't work. I have to be really sober. And I'm like, I hope I don't have to watch this person die. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of what I worry about with that stuff. Yeah. And I don't know if people think that people still think that having money makes it easier to get and stay clean and sober. I just disagree. I think it's a killer disease. If that was true, we wouldn't have these people dying who have every resource possible and they'd still die yeah it's a killer disease and i mean those those are more um popularized stories obviously because these are these are famous people but um yeah it doesn't it doesn't care it doesn't and people be like oh so and so he was so brilliant and i'm like he the disease killed him like it killed him it could kill me or you you know we wouldn't make news when it did but it's, it is no respecter of anything. Like you can be smart. That doesn't make a difference. You can no. have a good family or a shit family. Doesn't make a difference. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. And fame is kind of a drug too, right? Even just the little modicum of, of likes and clicks yes, that's true. and hearts that we all so desperately want when yeah. we're scrolling through and hoping that, oh gosh, did somebody like such and such yeah. and how many people and so, I mean, we're all susceptible to it. I'm susceptible to it. Yep. And I try to, that's why I've tried to, I, I do my best to kind of just let it go. Yeah. Smart. And it just, whatever it is, whatever it is, is because I yeah. used to get really obsessed about it. And then it's like, this is insane, John. It's yeah. not helping you. <laughs> yeah. I, I went through that little journey myself and um, like you, I put my work out there and I don't track too much. Cause when I was tracking, it became a mind game that I wasn't winning. <laughs> I was yeah. a mind game in my own mind and I was still losing, but <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, so any advice to somebody who's listening and says, Hey, maybe I should get sober or I'd like to try it, or maybe I need to quit my alcohol. What would you what, what advice might you give to somebody who's thinking about that? I'd say maybe two things. The first is if it even occurs to you that maybe it's not working, 
it mm-hmm. is very likely that you should, you know, because because otherwise it wouldn't occur to you. You would just keep drinking and using and your life would be fine. So if, if you're thinking about it, I say you should just cannonball into recovery. Just do it. Just jump. I jumped. The second thing I'd say is not quite advice, but I just wanted to say something that was so meaningful to me when I was new. I would go into a room and every person in there cared about me and my sobriety. I'd never been in a room where I could say, I don't want to drink again. And people would say, okay, well, we're here to help you. My own mother, when I first got sober, she said to me, you're not an alcoholic. You didn't drink enough. So I come from a world where the denial is just so, I needed a room that was outside of the denial. That's Mm -hmm. what I needed. And so it's a place you can go and there will be people there who might be in denial or people who are there to just get a court slip signed or people who are there to just pick up someone for sex. But most people there will care so much and they will help you and no questions asked. So I say, go for it. It's, it's an adventure. It's an adventure to get and stay clean and sober. Loved it. Yes. 10 out of and 10. <laughs> yes. And as somebody who uh, had to be pulled and dragged and kicked and screamed through the whole process. And sometimes I feel like I wish I would have just jumped right in. I know that I should have just jumped right in. And part of me feels like maybe I need to jump in again. Right. So maybe do it again, go yeah. through the whole process again with somebody. Um, but yeah. But you're probably really nice and patient, John. Um because because if you were if you were reluctant or when people get dragged go out Mm -hmm. sometimes they're more patient sponsor than someone like me who i had a drill sergeant type Mm -hmm. of sponsor and that's kind of my personality now i'm like if you're i'm that type of sponsor that's like are we doing this or not ass like I'm, i'm like kind of that kind of guy right but we we need all kinds of sponsors we need the soft and tender ones for sure And thank you for saying that. And I will only, I will say this because I used to go, I would, I went to lots of different meetings, trying to find a meeting that fit for me. And I went to a, um, what they call a stag meeting. So all men, and I didn't like it at all. It was just too much hua, rah, 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 and all that stuff. And I'm, and I met some amazing men there. And I'm grateful that those meetings exist for people who need them like yes. 100%, but it was not for me. And thankfully I took the, the advice of, you know, find somebody who has what you want and uh, ask them how they got it. And I found some very soft-spoken gentleman uh, who was articulate in his words and took his time. And I was like, Hey, can you help me? And he's like, if you want, (laughs) and that's kind of how that happened. And so I guess I would be patient, but also I'm not someone to suffer anybody's I'm not one to suffer fools anymore either yeah that's about a month ago my husband said to me because we both have these great careers that we love and Mm -hmm. he said he said Kelly one difference between you and I is he said I suffer fools and I don't think you do and I was like that's true but like but that hit that personality type that is a bit more soft and gentle Mm -hmm. has its place because I I don't have time to tell another little story sure yeah. I was going to a 
a meeting where there were like three of us there, me and two really old geezers. And we ran this meeting for years. It was the oldest running meeting in Grace Harbor. It ran for 30 years and I would go there. And there was a fellow there named Bruce that he was, he just seemed so gruff, like an old timer. He had 30 some years. And one night a woman came in drunk and she was just behaving in a way that I was totally annoyed with. And I just, I kept my tongue, but anyway, Bruce ca called me and her back to the back room because he wanted a woman to be there, right? Um, and uh, he suddenly transformed from this gruff guy that I had known for years. And he was so soft and kind with her. And I didn't realize he had that in him. He was just, he was so much softer than I thought. And I remember thinking, I've only been sober a couple of years and I'm instantly annoyed with the still drinking alcoholic. He has seen hundreds of thousands of these people yeah. and he had that tenderness in him still. And I just was like, okay, like he's a better man than I, because I still was in that place of like impatience. It's like, if you don't want to be sober, just leave. And so I do want to be more kind hearted like that. I do, because I don't know why I'm so hard hearted in that way. Cause why? Like, there's no, but I will say that that's who my sponsor was. She was real tough. And that's what I benefited from the most. I think if yeah. she would have been softer, I would have left to be yeah. honest. Yeah. It definitely does require all of us. Yes, <laughs> right? I think so. I really think so. Yeah. Um, and then, well, is there anything you want to plug? You mentioned something about a writing, uh, oh, gosh. Uh, um, platform. I guess I'm, so I'm a designer uh, and um, you can see my work at my Instagram. That's probably the best place to just sort mm -hmm. of see what I do. And I do have a couple other projects, but that's probably the best place to get to know me. Just my name, Kelly Hogaboom. Okay. And thank you very much. Um, yeah. Are you looking for new guests? And I could probably off, off camera pass some people your way or you send yeah we can definitely talk and i'm i'm always looking for new guests and people awesome. who are interested in, in sharing for sure um thank you this is great yeah really i nice love talking meet. recovery thank you for the opportunity it's, <laughs> yeah, been, you it's bet. been great awesome. cool thanks again for listening our music as always is by neglect you can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com and you can find us on all social media platforms that matter instagram facebook and twitter and you can reach us at a is for alcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>